Welcome to Just the Right Book. I'm Roxanne Cody. I had the opportunity to interview Nicole Krause for her newest book called Forest Dark. Nicole is one of my most favorite writers uh, out there today. I think History of Love, her previous book, belongs on the list of must-reads. And her latest book continues that trend about this notion that we all have a piece of us that we need to fill. And she does it by telling us the story of two different characters. Make sure to stay tuned after the interview to hear Alyssa Muscatine, the co-owner of the renowned Politics and Prose bookstore in D.C., who told us about a recent interview with Hillary Clinton and what's on their front table. And only for Just the Right Book podcast listeners, we are giving away a copy of Nicole's new book, Forest Dark. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash bookpodcast and check the post at the top with details on how to enter to win. That's facebook.com slash bookpodcast. But first, my interview with Nicole. Nicole Krause is an award-winning, best-selling author. She was selected as one of Granta's best young novelists. She was on the New Yorker's list of 20 under 40, and her latest novel, Forrest Dark, has been called elegant, provocative, and mesmerizing. This achingly beautiful and breathtaking original novel about personal transformation of two seemingly disparate individuals has been called a brilliant novel by no less than Philip Roth, who further goes on to express the sentiment of being full of admiration. It's a pretty exciting and deserving sentiment for a writer that I find to be provocatively philosophical, fiercely intelligent, and poetic. Welcome, Nicole Krause. Oh, thank you so much. That was beautiful. Well, thank you. Uh, so we have two characters here um, in your new novel, which, just so that our listeners know, I have about, I, I'm going to say, 80 pages turned down with underlinings and want to go back and read the whole book again because it's so full of, I think, what teaches us how to live. So you have two characters. One, Jules Epstein, a man whose drive and outsized personality have for 68 years been a force to be reckoned with. And then you have a young writer leaving her family in Brooklyn. Uh, She's a well-known novelist. She takes off for the Tel Aviv Hilton. She's troubled by writer's block and a failing marriage, and she hopes that the hotel can unlock a dimension of reality in her own perception of life. How did these two characters that seem so disparate, did you feel uniquely suited to a story about transformation and metamorphosis? Well, they both, each of them, when I sort of found them on the page, which happened probably about half a year apart from each other. They both had that thing which I search for um, and don't often find for years when I'm looking for a new book or a new character, which is people who are whole and complete and fully wrought and at the same time searching. And mm. it's their it's their searching aspect that that moves me and feels will give me enough room to Tell, tell a large story and to ask 
questions that really feel urgent and important to me that I don't have the answers to setting out. And maybe we'll never have the answers to, but they become my guides in that. And, you know, Epstein, who you described, despite, you know, first 68 years being a man of absolute certainty, you know, a man who just wielded his authority so naturally in the world, successful attorney who had money and who was just larger than life, filled every room he was in. He has depth to him um, and he finds himself in a moment that I, I think many of us have found ourselves in young or older where we have to ask, what if, you know, the things that I've staked my life on, mm. I was wrong about? And when to ask that question or be open enough to that question suggests that you're open to being changed. And, and for him, that question is about, well, what if I, you know, here, master of the material realm, so sure of myself, what if I neglected the unknown, you know, the, the more spiritual realm? And so his story starts there. And, and Nicole equally has questions about, the forms she's chosen for her life. She's more she's more used to thinking about those questions because she's also a writer. And of course, you think about form and narrative, the narratives of lives often when you work. And so she begins to ask similar questions about in what ways have I chosen forms that only constrain me and can I break them open? Um, and so there was an echo between them and I understood that they were, in a sense, two sides of, of one story. Mm. There's a paragraph that you have that I, I keep coming back to, and if I might, I'll I'll read it because it follows on what you just talked about. He felt the ballast gone. Everything and everyone that held him to the pattern of himself was gone now. He leaned his forehead against the glass and looked out at the immense realm of the sky hemmed below by the jagged line of primordial masses. He felt aroused, not only by the view, but by his own receptivity. Something had been dislodged, and in the cavity, the nerves conducted raw feeling without purpose. He probed tenderly and discovered, as one discovers with all absences, that the emptiness was far larger than what had once filled its place. Yeah. <laughs> and do you think that Epstein, who, who you know, you've described as a bigger-than-life man, a, a man for whom argument was the median, do you think along the way he felt that emptiness growing, or do you think it was like falling off a cliff for him? I think it was something in the middle, which, again, I think is probably common to most of us, and it's something like this— we sort of go along in our lives and we grow used to telling a certain story of who we are, mm. you know, that narrative of the self. And it happens from a very young age, you know, from earliest memory when a parent says to us, you are like this and your brother is like that or our teachers or, you know, our friends tell us something about who we are and we sew it into the story of ourselves. And then that story gain such traction. Um, and in a sense, we begin to need its coherence mm. more 
then we even need the content of what it's telling us. We need to have this, you know, coherent, stable sense of a self. And, and yet from time to time, we, you know, a window opens in consciousness and we know that there's another story to be told, mm. that we're in a sense, you know, not taking in the whole picture of who we are, of what the world is, because if we did that, the narrative of that self would become too chaotic or too unstable. And, and, and so, you know, we all have that feeling where we're going along in life and we think, hmm, <laughs> I know I should stop to think mm. about that little window onto infinity that just opens in the corner of my eye, but I can't, or I'm too busy to, or it might unseat me. Or you're and too so fearful. We're too fearful um, at times. And, and I think the thing about Epstein is that despite all of that certainty, ask him what he values in himself, it would be his strength and courage. And, and I think he seizes on that courage to make that sudden turn late in life and say, no, I, I need to actually open up this window that I've been ignoring in the corner of my eye and understand what it really tells me about myself and, and my world. You know, Nicole, it reminds me, I often am fascinated by when you meet someone new, what it is they first want to reveal about themselves. You know, whether it's the, you know, they went to an Ivy League college or their grandfather was someone who made an impactful difference in the world or about how many kids they have or, and I I often think about that as the construct by which they operate. I absolutely agree with you. And I also would add to that, that even when we do that, you know, this is the college I went to, this is the... I think we we sort of half hate ourselves mm-hmm. with, each, with each time we say it because we know that we're just pounding we're pounding the nail further yeah. into the coffin <laughs> exactly. of all the other possibilities of how we can you know tell our story and who we can be because language is generative you know that that is the trick in a sense that the moment we say or you know I am this or someone says you are this it enters into reality and and so this you know this is something that as a writer now for 15 years writing novels, I have found is that there's a vast difference of, you know, when I sit down at my desk to work and I understand very vividly that the self is something that can be expanded and and amplified as I pour myself into different characters. I become an old man. I tell a story that happened a hundred years ago. I can tell a story into the future. I can be a young girl. I'm, as I tell each of those stories, it isn't only about self-expression. It's about self-invention, right? Mm. I'm becoming, one life is not enough. I want more and I can, and I, and you, you, you give yourself more as you write, but then, you know, leaving the writing room, you return to reality, so to speak. And there we're still going around with these sort of much more narrow, slim, constraining narratives of the self and not recognizing that they are. They are fictional constructs and we do have a choice to some degree about them and how we tell them. Um, and, and, and more and more I found that that has flooded, that knowledge sort of floods into my life um, and then floods back into the work again, too. So, Nicole, when you take on, when you sort of, I'll use the term, flex the muscles of developing these characters like Epstein or 
Nicole or Alma in History of Love, do you find that that does give you the capacity to expand your own sense of yourself and change your narrative in a kind of accretive way? Radically, fundamentally and radically. And I just can't emphasize that enough. You know, I mean, creating a character involves two things. It involves, of course, a sifting through all of a lifetime of experience and and memory and observation. Um, and it involves a, a huge act of empathy in which you say, what is it to be the other? How, how can I use all of my experience and what I know about the world to imagine being something other? And the moment you imagine that other, it comes into you. Mm. It comes into you and expands it, you, your sense of who you are, of what it must be like to be like that, and it becomes yours too. And that, that that's not something that, that only a writer experiences. It's something that, as we all know, who are addicted readers, we experience as readers. It's and why we read. <laughs> it's why we read. It's why we read because only in literature, and I just never have found any place else in art or in life that can deliver us this experience, only in literature can we enter fully and totally and intimately into someone else's mind and and feelings and body and understand what it is to be that. And part of it involves imagining ourselves and it, oh, I am like this or Mm. I am not like this. But it also is just sort of letting down our guard about how much we know and how much we're sure of and saying, I don't know what it's like to be that and I want to know and I think I can find a connection between myself and that. And the moment that act of empathy happens, our worlds expand. And I think two things happen as an addictive reader myself is there's that. I mean, I often say that there are a variety of reasons um, to read that range from the entertaining to the thought-provoking to the gaining knowledge. But at the most important it is about the capacity to understand someone, as you say, intimately, which gives you the opportunity to be empathetic. But there's another quality about reading, and I wish I could remember who said it, and that is when you, the reader, are reading, that is the most intimate experience that you are having with your own self because of just what you said. You you read something and it might be a little pinch of what you know resides in you. Maybe it's a a touch of meanness or a capacity for evil or incredible generosity. And you read it on the page and it might be the only instance in which you admit to yourself that that exists within you. I agree. I think books are very much reflections. They hold up a reflection of of the mind that's and and the heart and soul that's reading them. And I would add uh, to that that because novels are searching vehicles, you know, they're not. They don't deliver the news. You know, they don't mm-hmm. deliver the answers. What they do is they give the reader the space to dwell in the question um, for a long, the, as long as it takes to read that novel, um, if it's a good one. The less good ones sometimes give answers early on. Yeah, yeah. But, but the, one, the, the ones that have really mattered to me, 
have given me the chance to dwell for a long time in the questions. And when you do that and you give yourself space for that, you give yourself space to be surprised and to be changed. I mean, I always think of that. There's a line from the poet Rilke in one of his poems. It's the last line of, of the poem, The Archaic Bust of Apollo, and it's simply, you must change your life. And I just think that is the mm. imperative of literature. That's what it does. And yeah. when we say, oh, that moved me so much, what are we saying? We were moved. We were in one place, and now we're here. We were changed. And, you know, as much as change can sometimes be a little scary, I think fundamentally we want to be changed. We want to grow and have our minds and our, our hearts changed. And there's something in our in our species that, that wants that evolution, you know, and so I think, you know, we, we, we continue to go to books for that. Nicole, what, listening to you talk about this, what was your um, hope in naming your character, one of your characters, Nicole, and she too is a young writer. Um, she too um, lives in Brooklyn. What was your hope in coming up with someone that was at least proximate to yourself? Well, there were many things involved with that. On the one hand, it was, you know, to continue this conversation we've had about making more flexible and open our dear of narrative. I thought to myself, well, if I'm inviting the reader to think about these things, in a sense, I have to begin with myself. And so it's a kind of offering to say, okay, here are the broad strokes of this character whose name is Nicole, like mine, and who has you know, as I said, these broad strokes of my life. She's a writer. She has two children. Um, she's found that various forms in her life and work no longer fit her. But then, what happens is what always what happens to her is what always happens to my characters, which is that she takes on a life of her own, and mm. quite extraordinary things happen to her. Things which might, you know, and and should push the bound, boundaries of what we think of normally as reality, because, of course, we, can, we have plenty of reality in the supermarket and the doctor's office, but we go no, to books for that other imagined alternate world that, that, that has some you know, greater truth that it sends back to us about being here. Um, so she becomes a fictional character, and, and in a sense, it's an invitation to the reader to say that, you know, this is, in a sense, important to do with all of ourselves to open the narrative, expand it beyond this sort of stiff and tired and constraining one that we've been telling ourselves, which is no longer works, is no longer big enough for us, um, never, doesn't give us enough freedom. So it's that, you know, that act of granting her the freedom to become imagined mm. and go on her journey and giving the reader that. And then the second bit is that I felt, I think it's only sort of in that moment in my life as a writer that I felt it's not, how can I back up and explain this? It's not easy as a young woman writer to insist on your authority. I wish it were. Mm. I wish the world were different. Right. But when you're a young woman writer, you have to fight for your, for your right to your authority in the world and on the page. And there are many ways to do that. We go about it in many ways. One of the ways I did it was to say, well, rather than write in, you know, a, a woman's voice like mine, I'll just going to throw my voice into an old man, and there I can do all of the things I want to do. I have the whole human range. Mm. I can be angry, violent, curmudgeonly, funny, tender, charming, obnoxious, 
all of the things that humans can be right. and still likable because a lot of those characteristics I just listed are not considered likable and, and therefore in a, in a woman and therefore block that thing we describe that we want as readers, which is the act of empathy. So I think it was a shortcut in a sense to get, you know, bypass that question of mm. what was possible in a woman's voice. And as time passed and I no longer fight, felt I had to fight so much for that authority, um, I felt more comfortable do it in, doing it in whichever way I wanted. Mm. <laughs> and, and so I felt more comfortable writing you know, many kinds of female voices. There are female voices in my last book, Great House, that are difficult, that are, you know, seem at first to be unlikable until you spend time with them and understand them and hopefully your empathy takes root. Um, And here I felt like I could write a character, you know, that closer to my own voice and, 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 and not be crippled by some of those perceptions. So, Nicole, that makes me ask the the question, you know, there is a lot of conversation recently that each of us have some sharp opinions about whether any person has the right to take on a character that's not them, meaning a woman shouldn't write as a man, a man shouldn't write as a woman, a Jew shouldn't write as an Arab. Um, You know, it goes on and a white person shouldn't write as a black person. It goes on and on about not accepting that right, as as you call it. What's your opinion on all of that? I don't understand why we don't trust the reader to know what's authentic mm. and real and moving. I don't know why we need to police writers yeah. and thinkers. I think that we know as readers on the page what's what's overstepping and what's not an act of empathy and what is. And to put down a list of rules about what we are and aren't allowed to do, is right. it just feels to me like a form of censorship and, of, and, 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 and a lessening of freedom in a place where we only want more and more freedom. We could freedom to fail, to make mistakes, to mm. say the wrong thing. All of those are possible as a writer. But, you know, if what we want is to understand the other, then why not be guided in, in the effort to do so by someone who's trying to do it? I don't mm-hmm. know what it's like to be an Arab, but if that if I spent a lot of time thinking about it and I wanted to do it with all my sensitivity and compassion that I have, I might fail at it. But why not try that? Isn't that you know? Isn't that you know? That, I think the conversation, of course, is complicated by many other things. The fact that art becomes commercial and who profits from it, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in just in, in, in the pure question of who gives us the right, well, you know, the, the right is only clear once it's done in the page. Should the person have the right? If it's moving and successful and brings some truth to the mm. reader, then yes. You know, at uh, R.J. Joya Banned Books Week, I think it's next week or the week after, and I'm sure most listeners know Banned Books Week talks about the crazy array of books that have been banned by some library or some school or or some other institution. And one of the things that we're going to do rather than focus on banned books is encourage people to read books with the point of view that is starkly in contrast to their own. Mm-hmm. Because I, like many people, feel that no one has the unique capacity to be right. 
everybody has something that we can listen to and learn from. And I think too often we're all living in our own little echo chambers. Increasingly so. And so I'm hoping that just like you take on the character of an older man, although we have to be careful because he's exactly my age. (laughs) (laughs) Although I often say if I were hit by a bus, they would say an elderly woman was hit by a bus. (laughs) Um, We're we're all reduced on the page from time to time, aren't we? (laughs) Exactly. But speaking of identity, there's a quote. This is Nicole speaking in the book where she says, I'm flattered that you approached me. Really, I am. This is this character, Friedman, who wants uh, Nicole, the character, to take on finishing some of Kafka's work. My life is already complicated. I'm not looking to contribute to Jewish history. History. Who said anything about history? Now this is uh, Friedman. The Jews never learn from history. So that prompts me to ask you two questions. What do you personally feel has been your role to contributing to Jewish history? And do you think Jews don't learn from history? Jewish history is a relatively recent concept, mm. and, you know, it, um, but Jewish memory goes back thousands of years mm. and to the stories that, you know, have been told in the Bible and edited and written there and, you know. So that sense of historiography and its various rules and regulations being a a relatively modern concept, and and it's a question that not only Friedman asked, but others, um, wonderful historians like Yerul Shami, who was a a professor who worked at Columbia for many years, and asked in a book called Zakor, which is the word for memory in Hebrew. And so what constitutes our sense of self? Is it some chronicling of the past that is truth? Or is it, do we accept that we are shaped by memory, which is a much more amorphous, slippery mm. thing? It's an, it's an act of invention. It's a creative act, as we all know. And we increasingly know as neuroscientists study memory and tell us what it, you know, what really is about. And no one can say anymore, oh, memory is just a reflection, a true reflection of my life. We know you know, we edit it and we forget vast portions and we even what we remember is altered because we desperately need to tell this coherent story, you know. And so I think it's it's really that that, that Friedman is raising, you know, what this power of memory, whether it's Jewish memory, whatever your culture may be, you know, that kind of cultural memory of what you come from and what's considered valuable and, and important. You know, I feel that's a question... That's interesting to me, but my material, the one, the material I was born into happens to be Jewish, and so I can I can think about those things there, um, but I don't think the thinking is limited to, mm-hmm. to you know, to the Jews. So to, you know, I think it, a, a lot of times these questions of how, how has the past shaped who we are? Do we accept that shape and allow ourselves to be bound to it over and over, mm. like, you know, Isaac was bound by Abraham and we have been binding ourselves since and we and we tell that story and we're telling a story about sacrifice and worship and you know we're telling a story about what we will give up in order to belong to this long genealogy of this culture and this tradition do we accept their certain bindings and if we do what do what do those things give us and in what ways do they hinder us mm. and what are other versions of that story that we can open and tell so that we might become the things that we want to become mm. rather than just a re- repetition, you know, of tradition in the past. I think about that in our family. I'm one of six, 
and my parents are both or were both Holocaust survivors and the constraint or opportunity that legacy or that transference of trauma has done to each of the six of us is different and fascinating. And it may, you know, and you do think about that all the time as you watch people's experiences. You know, someone who's surviving the hurricane down in Texas, like what element of that survival will now define them? And be passed on. Absolutely. And and again, this is something we learn more and more about from science um, and all of our sense of it, which is that trauma is passed down, we sort of now know to be true on the level of the genes. But I guess what I find interesting about that is that, and yet each of us is different, and what one does with that inheritance is different depending on the soul and the mind that each of us has. And, you know, why do some not suffer and not survive? Why do some grow past mm. it why does you know there, there's so many versions of what one, one can do with the past one's been given um and th- that interests me that that creative power we have in that realm what will we do with what we've inherited interests me and moves me very much yeah i feel the same you know because to me i just imagine a countless uncountable number of permutations of experience from one person to the other, one kind of combustible chemistry, one sort of uh, explosive, productive chemistry that happens from those things. Yeah. And then and then to expand the thought even further, sometimes I also feel, well, well each of us have all of those possibilities within us, mm-hmm. you know, and we often choose one path and one, but we also can see how we could have chosen another, you know, and it, it, to be a person is a long and difficult and beautiful thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I try to focus on the beautiful part of that. <laughs> Nicole, we're we're running out of time, and I have two other questions. I mean, I have 200 other questions, but uh, for purposes of this conversation, share with us where the title of the book came from. It came very late. Titles are always the last things that arrive for me. Um but this title comes from the opening lines of Dante's Inferno in the translation by Longfellow. And those lines are, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Mm. And it, to me, that reflected, those lines reflect so deeply so many aspects of this book, both the, the getting lost um, the sense of no longer wanting to follow the straightforward path, the given path, you know, the path of the laws um, of narrative and reality that are imposed on us, but wanting to become something else. And and they also evoke, you know, the forest itself, which is central as a, as a landscape in, in this novel, as central as, as the desert is as well. Um, and the forest is that place, you know, just, historically in art and literature where not only does one get lost, but it's the place that is outside the laws of human mm-hmm. order. You know, the opposite of the forest is the city, which is just a reflection of the orderly human mind. But the forest is where outlaws go, where magic and mystery happen, where the unknown resides. And that's so much of where this book wants to go. So it felt the right to me that very much the right title. Yeah, I love that. And and Nicole, the thing I want to really thank you for is I've been an 
avid fan of yours. And I think um, apropos of this conversation, what you do, as well as anyone I know writing today, is give us the opportunity to really think about who we are and more importantly, what we can be. And I think you do that, you know, you've done it with every one of your novels. I think you do it again in Forest Dark. And I think actually by having these disparate characters, it left me with the notion that everyone gets a little lost and feels there's no one type of person that's uniquely in need of finding a way out. And thank goodness for that variety, right? Yeah. And and um, I thank you for that. That's very beautiful and moving to hear. And um, I think in a sense, it's what matters most to me, you know, to give, to open that space first for myself when I'm writing. And then I hope when the book goes out into the world, as it does now, um, to readers who will you know, fill it with their own mm. questions. I'm sure they will. So what's the book that changed your life, Nicole? <laughs> Only one. Well, you you could pick two today. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> there there are so many of them. You know, I, there's, this, there's a moment in Great House where one of the characters jokes and says, you know, just when I am when I imagine excising from my life and memory all the books that I read, just imagine that nuclear winter of a self that I would be. I cannot imagine. I've been mm. so fundamentally um, and powerfully and continuously changed by books that I that I have loved. Um, but I think you know one that just springs immediately to mind that from earliest earliest childhood is when I was like six or seven, my grandfather gave me this book called The Alphabet Story, and it basically told the story of each of the Hebrew letters Mm -hmm. as if they were characters as they rose in their adventures through the Hebrew Bible. And I really feel that book stayed with me in such an oddly strange and powerful way that I think it gave me my first sense of language as having a life of its own. Mm. And it's something I've never given up on, and it's something that has proven true to me for all these years that I've been writing, that one begins with a sentence or a word, and it takes you places you never imagined that you might go. I have to go back and look at that book. Mm. Like, I've I've since read it to many a child, and um, it's, it's, it's still kind of extraordinary after all this time. My kids love it very much. Well, Nicole, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us and for the books that you write and the kind of sensibility you bring to human experience. So thank you very much for your books. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful to talk to you. It just it just published yesterday, right? Today. Oh, today. Yeah. Wow. Today is the official day. Mazel tov. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so Wishing much. you great success with it. Oh, I appreciate it. And thank you for such a sensitive reading of it. Really, I can't tell you how much it means to me. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks again to Nicole Krauss. Now it's time to hear what is on the front table at the famous Politics and Prose. Lissa. Hey, Roxanne. How are you? We have to think of different ways of meeting than this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Great. Ready? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. 
We are joined today by Lisa Muscatine, who is the owner with her husband, Bradley Graham, of Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C. And for those of you that don't know the store, which I can't imagine any book lover wouldn't, I think it's one of the finest independent bookstores in the country. Uh, it was a great store for decades. And when Lisa and Brad bought it. They've preserved what was great about it and enhanced it. And now, because it wasn't crazy enough to buy politics and prose, they also are opening another location, which we'll hear about. But welcome, Lissa. Thank you so much, Roxanne. I love being on your podcast with you. Well, you were our, um, I could call you our original what's on the front table guest, or I could call you our guinea pig, but <laughs> I'm delighted that you were willing to do it again because you're you're a great guest. Well, I'm happy to be a guest or a guinea pig anytime. <laughs> Thank you. So Thanks tell us about me. this other location. Like, what were you well, thinking? <laughs> Well, yeah, what were we thinking? I don't know. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, there have been a number of smaller stores that have opened in D.C. Uh, in the last couple of years, which is a wonderful sign, of course. But but many parts of the city are deserted. There's no bookstores. There's not much of anything, except that these are parts of the city that are experiencing unbelievable dynamic growth. Mm. And there's been a huge demographic shift in the city uh, into these various new neighborhoods. And we are approached, as I know you are, too, often by different organizations, developers, and others who, you know, think that a bookstore would be the anchor for their new property or their new whatever they're building. And we've consistently turned these down. The economics don't work. The location doesn't work. We didn't want to take on another store. But in this case, there's an area down by the old, by the river, that's an old original harbor and port area of Washington that really uh, has been on hard times. And just there's nothing about it except that it's a beautiful sort of dramatic Mm. venue. And uh, this real estate group came in and is redeveloping it it, it, with a a kind of historic finish. And it's going to be, we think, really nice and interesting and not antiseptic and sterile like so many of these developments often can be. And what we've done is we've just said, look, we will consider any invitation to move into a new location if the economics are right. And our conditions, as you might imagine being a bookseller yourself, you know, are usually so ridiculous that nobody would consider granting these conditions to us. And in this case, they did. So we thought, okay, well, we'll try it. That's exciting. So when will it open? It's going to open in mid-October. You know, we'll see. It's pretty far from our original store. So it's called The Wharf, and that's where we're going to be. And how big is the store? The store is going to be a little over 2,000 square feet. I think it's around 2,300, 2,400 square feet. Alyssa, that's that's fantastic. And if you send us pictures... We'll put it on our website because people will be interested in seeing it and coming to visit and all that. Yeah, no, we're really we're really looking forward to it. We're very excited about it. That's great. That's great. Congratulations. Now, the other thing about politics and prose is I think you do 10 or 12 events a week. Is that is that about right? I mean, yeah, I'm always, you know, jealous or envious. I forget which is the better or worse thing to be um, because there isn't anybody touring who doesn't get to politics and prose. And I think I've got this right. You were the debut event for Hillary Clinton's event. Yeah. Monday, we were the first stop of what's going to be a 15 city tour for her. And interestingly, we're the only bookstore sponsoring an event for her. She's doing other events in auditoriums and large venues that 
uh, where bookstores are, are, the, are supplying the books, but we're actually the only bookstore that was organized and sponsored her event here. I just want to say, since you're talking about how many events we have, that on Monday, which was September 18th, we had her at the Warner Theater, which holds about 1,850 people. We had Patty Smith that same night at Sixth and I Synagogue, which holds about 800 people. We had Daniel Mendelssohn in the store, and earlier that day in the store, we'd had uh, the author of Girls Who Code for a children's and teens event. So, you know, that was four events in one day, and I have to say they were all pretty heavyweight events, so it can get kind of crazy. So so for our listeners, you can see why I'm jealous slash envious. (laughs) Anyway, so how was the event? Well, you know, it was really, it was great. It was, I mean, I think it was great. I I hope other people um, who attended thought it was great. And it was live on C-SPAN, which was nice, and it's being replayed on C-SPAN quite a bit. But, you know, it was was such a a spirited, lively, warm, appreciative audience, and Mm. obviously very partisan in her corner. But the the warmth in the in the hall and just the excitement and enthusiasm and appreciation was so hard to miss. And I think, you know, that makes the guest relaxed, right? I mean yeah. it helps, right? And it helps the I was the moderator, so it helped me be relaxed too. And um, you know, we had a conversation for about an hour and ten minutes and took audience questions at the end via note card. So I think it was I think it went really, really well. She seemed to have a really good time. I had I know I had a good time. Um, and the book is really worth reading. I mean, I say that honestly, uh, it is definitely worth reading. Um, if for no other reason than it really does give you a feel for what it's like to have run for president as mm. the first woman who's done so. Because I've seen reviews all over the map. Um, yeah. mostly yeah. they've been quite positive and even those that have been slightly negative have been measured. And I think the, what, what all the reviews have said, which which is what you're saying is, at any rate, you get a great idea of what it's like to go through this, you know, meat grinder of what running for president today is about. Well, exactly. And I think, you know, I think what, what most reviews and, and most people who've read it, who I know, agree on is that she is definitely less guarded. Mm. You know, she, she's more, she's more open about personal things. She's more revealing about, you know, even her tastes and things or times when she was really down or how she coped with the devastation of the election. She's, she's far more open than she's ever been. And that's very appealing, right? Cause that's what people that's never kind of got. And yeah, they want it and they never feel like they got it. And I think for her, it was cathartic to be able to do that. Finally, you know, I think there are other places where she's been criticized for, you know, being selective in, talking about something political or being, you know, not really being as revealing as maybe she could have been, you know, then that's fine. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a very good book. I think she should, you know, she, her points about things like the Russians and fake news and WikiLeaks and the connecting of dots that she does based on simply on evidence that's already out there is unbelievable. I mean, it, she, you know, she's a brilliant lawyer, right? Right. So she's taking all the evidence and laying it out for you and explaining in sort of a timeline how these things all add up and not drawing legal conclusions because we're not there yet, but certainly connecting a lot of dots that make a pretty compelling case. Um, and Lisa, what do and, you make of the criticism of the book that she is not being um, uh, as critical of her own campaign as some might think she should be? As if, in other words, some of the reviews have said, yes, 
she was at the wrong end of misogyny of Comey coming out with a statement in October of um, a kind of building on negatives about her. But her campaign also didn't necessarily do everything that a good, a well-run campaign would have done. Does she address that in the book? You know, she, it's really an interesting question, Roxanne. Just, you know, for benefit of your audience, I got to do this sort of, you know, truth in advertising here. You know, I worked for her for many, many years and, and also was called in to help at various points in the campaign. So I may not be the least biased source around, right. but but I do think that there is some merit to that criticism. And, you know, in her defense, I think, you know, she's trying to take most of the blame for her campaign on her own shoulders because she was the one at the top. It was her campaign. Ultimately, you know, the buck stops there. And I think that's right. You know, you don't want to blame your campaign staff for things that maybe were your own limitations or your own uh, blind spots or whatever or, or wrong decisions. And I think she spent a lot of time, you know, reviewing and analyzing and going over and over and over again in her head what she could have done differently and where she may have failed or not done what she should have. And I suspect, and she doesn't really address this, but it sort of comes through, there's a certain amount of guilt that mm. all these people worked so hard for you yeah. and then you didn't win. You know, and by the way, she did win the most votes and still didn't win. So they worked so hard, they produced a candidate, who, you know, they produced a campaign that wins the most votes. And I, I think there's a terrible feeling and I think she's protective yeah of those people. I do think um, that those aspects of the book are, to me, the least persuasive. Mm-hmm. Not the parts about her accepting blame. I think she does a, she does a pretty good job of saying, I, I screwed this up. I didn't see this in time. I misread the, the mood of you know some of these working class voters, especially. I mean, she's very upfront about that sort of thing. But in terms of the question you're asking about, does her campaign itself shoulder enough of the blame? Probably not. Yeah. The, uh, the thing that I have been struck by in interviews is the point that you made. I think her guilt about letting down the Democratic Party or all the staffers who work so hard for her is palpable and seems to show a vulnerability about her that I think she is rarely shown. And that seems real, whether however she got there. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it, you know, it's one of those, it, it's an experience we all witnessed, but we don't know what it feels like to do, be the central actor in it, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, she's trying to kind of convey that. And I think for the most part, you get a really good feel for it. You also get a very good feel for the things she really does care about. And and by the way, one other thing that I think is really important about this book that people who want to know her better would enjoy about it a lot is she's really funny. Yeah. And so there's a lot of humor and she, you know, she, she, so she can be a little snarky and a little snide in places, but, but there's also just plain good old humor too. And yeah. that's refreshing. Um, so speaking, uh, and we're hosting her for a signing in October at Wesleyan RJ Joya. She's just signing there and speaking, but the tickets for that sold out in like five seconds. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think there's so much enthusiasm, but I do think about a book, uh, We had an author on a book called Trainwreck by Sadie Doyle. One of the things that she talks about in the book is we like our women down. We like that. Mm-hmm. We like them more when things have blown up for them, when they're right. out of favor than when they're in power. And yep. I, I thought about that. There was an article in the New York Times the other day about um, Angela Merkel, and it said how she has seen her way to her enormous success in Germany by cloaking her ambition and skill at 
maintaining power in a very steadfast commitment to blandness. And, um, you know, and I think that's an approach, right? We, We tend not to like women who take up too much air in the room, too much space in the room, or we like them when things aren't working. No, and that's certainly been Hillary's experience. I mean, you know, there's no, I don't believe there's any coincidence that she has been most popular either when people were feeling sorry for her after the Lewinsky scandal or after she lost the election to Barack Obama, the primaries, and then went to work for him. Right. You know, oh, now she's being a good girl. She's a good girl. We like good girls. We like good girls. And, you know, that's just a constant. And in fact, in in Hillary's book, she talks a lot about um, a conversation or several conversations she had with Sheryl Sandberg, who I guess had done a lot of research on the whole question of women's likability. And based on the research, um, you know, says that women who are more likable are more likable the less successful they are. And as they get more successful, they become less mm. likable. And it's the exact opposite for men. The more successful they are, the better liked they are. So, you know, that's a heck of a barrier for yeah. women trying to be in the public sphere, you know, like Hillary was. So speaking of good girls, are you able to share with us a little bit about, I know you're publishing a book called Hillary Land. Oh, you are so nice to bring that up. My gosh, um, thank you. And you and I have had lots of conversations about this book. It, it, you know, sort of your truth in advertising. Uh, but it's a book that there has been enormous excitement about in the publishing industry. And tell us a little bit about why you decided to write this book now and what your focus for the book will be. Yeah, no, thank you for asking. I um and it is, I should just say at the outset, it's a work in progress. Um, you know my editor, Ann Godoff, very, very well. And she keeps saying to me, you're, you know, you can't own it yet. You don't know yet. You have to keep, you know, thinking and talking to people and sort of reporting it out. Um, and I don't mean to suggest it's a work of journalism. It's going to be a first-person account. And the title, Hillary Land, for those who don't know, refers to, it was the nickname given to the small group of staffers that were assigned to Hillary in the 1992 presidential campaign, her husband's campaign. And then the name migrated with that group when they went to the White House, and it became the name for what was essentially this mostly women who um, who were working for Hillary Clinton in the White House and became a kind of power center uh, of their own. And you and were part of that group. Yes, I was part of that. And what's interesting to me about it, the way that I sort of think about it is, and why I want to write about it, is that when you step back, what you're looking at is a woman... Hillary Clinton, who comes to occupy the most traditional female symbolic role in American politics and government, first lady of the United States. And it's a, it's a, it's a role with no job description, with no actual power. And she comes into it and she thinks, eh, I think I'm going to do this differently. You know, I just, it's going to be too constraining to do what I want to do in this kind of a role. And how can I use my position as first lady and try to both advance my husband's agenda, but also advance issues that I care about Mm -hmm. that I think are more central to the American experience than most people think. So what she does is she um, basically embeds a bunch of women like me and others into the White House, into positions that were technically on the president's staff, but in fact, basically reported to her. 
And she does then have this power center. And it's the story of how that happened. Who were these people? How did it work? What was the, how did it affect the culture of the White House? I mean, this is the most male domain of American politics, Mm. the White House. And what does it tell us about, you know, women in leadership, women as advocates, as mentors, as decision makers, as workers, colleagues, and so on. Um, But also sort of what did this sisterhood uh, amount to? How did it evolve? What happened to it after she left the White House? And what it tells us about women sort of asserting their, their themselves and their voices in the public sphere. So that's kind of the general, very well, we can't very wait. general idea. You, you, don't, you don't have a pub date yet, right? Because then that would not, mean you no, have to get yet. it done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Details. Details. <laughs> We're not going to go there. Small facts. So, darling, before we run out of time, is there anything on your front table that you want to make sure we pay attention to? Uh, you know, I love, have you read Home Fire yet by Camilla Shamsi? No, I haven't. It's set in England, but it's very applicable to, to here, too. And it's just a wonderfully written novel. Um, we have, uh, you know, we have the new um, Le Carre. We've got McCullough, Louise Penny, Al Frank, and, you know, the usual suspects, Ann Patchett. But I think... Um, Camilla Shanti. And then my other really favorite book, but I think we maybe already talked about this because it's been out now for quite a while, is Lab Girl. Yeah, boy, we continue to have such enthusiasm for that book. I've n- I still have not read it, embarrassingly. Oh, my God, you'd love it. I think you'd like it. It's really, I mean, she's really quirky, but it's, it's a really, it's a really good book about a woman trying to make it in the sciences and then yeah, it's, and she's a fantastic storyteller. And a great and a great book for girls, like girls in high school. Yeah, I, you know, that's a good question. I think I'm wondering if it isn't a better book for women of a certain age, actually. But I don't know. It's because her stories are quirky. And I think I sort of related to it partly because I'm a little bit you know, older than a girl in high school. But I don't know. That's an interesting question. A lot of people, the year it came out, bought it as a gift for a girl interested in science or math who was in high school or college. Now, I never circled back and said, did she love it or did she find it quirky? But there was a lot of enthusiasm to give it to some girl because they don't have that many role models. You know, Hidden Figures is another one. Yes. And I mean, in the case of Hope Jaron, she does, it's it's not a straight line to the top by any stretch. You know, she has a lot of crazy situations and obstacles and so that's very useful for girls to be thinking about. I mean, I do think um, it's just a good book. You know, a good book is a good book, right? Yeah, exa- well, exactly. You know, I always say when you talk about when people think they know what they want to read, the book I always use the example of, if I said to you, do you want to read about a black poor woman in Baltimore in the 50s who has ovarian cancer? You'd say, you know, I think I'll pass. And yet right. I don't know a single person who hasn't read the story of Henrietta Lacks and doesn't think it's about as good a book as they've ever read. So it's all in the hands. You know, Rebecca Sclute, in writing that book, just knew how to tell that story to make it a universal story that people wanted to read and understand. So it could be about anything, it, you know, and I think that book and many books like it uh, reinforce that idea. It's about the storyteller. Exactly. If you told people the outlines of the story, you would never think you would read the book. I love that book, too. So, so Lisa, you have a problem on your hands now because you've again been a great guest, and that means <laughs> you're going to come on again. 
Well, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, uh, thank you. I'm I'm always honored and delighted. It's always fun to talk to you, whether it's a, a podcast or just hanging out. So yeah, I miss you. I really, really. Yeah, same, same. We miss you. And just for all of those who are listening, know Roxanne is like our North Star. Oh. You know, we learn everything from you. So thank you for continuing to be our, our North Star. Well, that's sweet. All right, Lisa. So I'll see you soon. And thanks again for joining us. My pleasure, Roxanne. Take care. Thanks again to today's guest, Nicole Krause's book, Forest Dark, is available now. And for a complete list of all the books we talked about, including what's on the front table of politics and prose, just go to bookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Pat Keo, and our producer, Christina Torres. Thank you all for listening.